Welcome back to Physically Spiritual. Games are simple because the rules almost never change in the middle of a match. Have you ever felt like the rules of life changed somewhere in the middle on you? Today, we will explore how the genetic phenomenon of antagonistic pleiotropy sheds light on common mistakes in the spiritual life. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I have discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Before we get started today, I want to draw your attention to the show notes. In the description of the show, there's a link to the Awaken Catholic page, and on there we post notes that go along with the show where we give you all the quotes that we talk about, all links to topics, and places where you can read more to learn more on the show. If you want to support everything we do here at Awaken Catholic, consider joining the Awaken Nation. Go to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate. Here at the Awaken Catholic, we are also partners with the Hollow app. Hollow is the only Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. Go to hollow.app forward slash awaken. Welcome back to Physically Spiritual. Uh, I'm happy that you've stuck with us. Uh, last week, we didn't record a show due to some scheduling difficulties, uh, but we hope that you took the week to uh, review previous episodes and catch up. This week, we're talking about antagonistic pleiotropy and holiness. You might be asking yourself, what the heck is antagonistic pleiotropy? Before I explain that, I want to uh, just share uh, where I got some inspiration for this episode. On the show, we talk a lot about faith and reason, science and religion, and sort of the, the fertile conversation that we can have and learn about how to live our life for the Lord, not just from what we discover in Revelation, but also what we discover in nature, what we discover through science. So this is a book, The Concept of Woman, Volume 3 by Sister Prudence Allen, part of her uh, amazing three-part masterwork on the philosophy of what it means to be a woman. And in here, she's making a, a comment about Niels Bohr, a physicist from the early 20th century, and how his ideas about the wave particle complementarity of light inspired a Catholic philosopher named Dietrich von Hildebrandt. This is what she has to say. In my view, it was Bohr's first identification of the wave-particle complementarity of light in physics that shed light that led to Dietrich von Hildebrandt's application of the word complementarity to the relationship of a married woman and man. Right, so what she's saying is that this physicist's insight about the relationship of the wave-particle or a wave and a particle, the relationship of the complementarity of these two elements of light, that that inspired Dietrich von Hildebrandt, this philosopher and theologian, uh, to then uh, understand the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage in a new way. Right? There's this fertile interchange of ideas. It's not just our faith that can inspire our, our, search, our searches in science, but it's also science that can inspire our faith. So on this, uh, inspired by this, in the same vein, I want to talk about this idea of antagonistic pleiotropy. 
Antagonistic pleiotropy is a theory of evolutionary biology. So first, the name pleiotropy is a phenomenon where one gene controls more than one phenotypic trait in an organism, right? So it's the same gene in your body, part of your genetic code in your DNA, and it's the same gene that controls more than one trait. And it's antagonistic. Uh, antagonistic because when uh, you can think of it like a teeter-totter effect when you have more weight on the one side of the teeter-totter it pushes the other end up and then if you add weight to the other side the opposite's true right so you have one gene that controls two traits and we're saying essentially the more that the one gene is pulled the more that the one traits expressed the more that the other one isn't so it has this antagonistic relationship where it's one side or the other so this hypothesis is used to explain why things never evolve to perfection. Essentially, uh, resources are always limited. Uh, so when, when creatures are evolving, they're going to prefer survival, and they're going to prefer the, uh, the passing on of your genetic code to the next generation, right? Survival for the individual and then survival for the species. Uh, so as, um, as a, an organism is evolving for survival, um, there's always going to be a trade-off because the environment is always changing. So what's, what's good for survival now, depending on the environment, uh, for the next generations may not actually be a positive thing, right? Because as the environment changes, those genes might no longer be helpful. Well, the same is true within the span of our own life. Adaptations that are helpful at the first part of life sometimes become harmful in the second half of life. Uh, so, so in this theory, part of it is that, that uh, our, our evolutionary biology is favoring the first half of life. Right? And, and this is used sometimes to explain the phenomenon of aging. Why do we age? Right? Why haven't we evolved to live forever? Well, the answer is that, that our biology is favoring the first half of life for us to grow to maturity and then to reproduce, to pass on our genetic code to the next generation and maintain the survival of the species. And, and that this is in some way actually cheaper than it would be to keep us alive forever. It's, it's very expensive to keep an organism alive forever. You have to, to have a lot of repair. You have, to, um, you have to continue to protect the organism, even when things get very old. <laughs> Imagine it like, um, like if you were fixing a car. At some point, uh, when you have a vehicle, even if you own it, it becomes more expensive to continue to own the vehicle than it would be to get a new one. Right? Maybe you've had a moment where you've taken your car to the repair shop and you realize the quote you get for the repairs is more expensive than the actual value of the vehicle. <laughs> well, at that point, you might say, well, maybe it's time for a new car. I don't want to spend more money on repairs than the vehicle's actually worth. So I'm going to trade this in for a new vehicle. This is essentially what nature is doing. It's saying it's becoming too expensive to keep this organism alive. So we're going to favor the traits to simply pass it on to create a new human. Uh, it doesn't sound that, that rosy uh, or comforting, but it's a phenomenon we believe is happening. So let me give you an example of this. An example of this would be uh, what sometimes what is called mammalian target of rapamycin, or mTOR. If you are uh, studying it all or, or researching it all in the area of longevity, how to keep human beings alive for a long time, you may have heard of mTOR. So mTOR is a gene that encodes for the proteins regulating cell growth. 
uh, mortality, protein synthesis, and autophagy. So for longevity's sake, growth is really important in the first half of life, but then in the second half of life, growth actually becomes less helpful and eventually problematic. Uh, this is, has come up in the news in recent years uh, through studies about fasting. What they've found in mouse studies is that when they deprive the mice of calories, when they fast the mice, that their lifespan extends dramatically. And they, they think what's happening is that this, this fasting is inhibiting mTOR and allowing the, the cellular regeneration to happen in the animal. So the, this process of autophagy. Uh, so in humans, in a, uh, the way we might want to think about this is, is early in life, activating this mTOR is really important. And mTOR is activated by uh, eating protein like leucine or eating carbohydrates. Uh, think of, um, think of the, the, the bodybuilder diet, right? Bodybuilders, they eat their whey protein, uh, probably some, some lean protein like chicken, and then carbohydrates like beans and rice. Uh, maybe a, a bodybuilder might just re repetitively take their protein shake, eat lean protein, eat beans and rice. And, and what they're doing in their body is they're, they're activating this gene. And, and by doing that, they're stimulating growth. They're stimulating growth in their muscles. Uh, but as you get older, you don't want to keep activating growth indefinitely because as your cells get less and less capable of replicating accurately, they eventually start to make mistakes. And one of those mistakes might lead to something like cancer. Uh, so as your cells become less and less capable of replicating accurately, uncontrolled growth becomes more and more dangerous. Uh, so what they've found in these mouse studies is that by I inhibiting mTOR expression, they're actually able to push off uh, the diseases that would lead to death long term. So early on, it's really important to grow. It's really important to get stronger because if you do ward off kind of the big three things that might kill us at a younger age, like cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease, or dementia, the next thing that you have to worry about is your musculoskeletal strength, meaning uh, you'll fall. You won't be able to hold yourself up. You won't be able to get up out of a chair. So in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, it's really important to get strong, to put on some muscle, especially in functional areas. You know, not, not just your, your biceps and areas that make you look good, uh, but, but in your legs and in the core of your body so that you can get up and, and play with your grandchildren and do things like this. But then in the, in the second half of life, it's important to spend some time inhibiting mTOR, right? Integrate some calorie restriction. And, and then so you don't have this uncontrolled growth and you can prevent some of these, possibly prevent some of these diseases of aging. Right. So here is an example from science. And I also want to give you an example from my life. I've talked a lot in this show about my journey for health. And one of the things that was really important early on in my journey was dieting and fasting. Um, so I, I used a, a whole carb low, or a whole food, low carbohydrate approach in my diet, coupled with uh, timed eating and intermittent fasting. And this is how I, how I approached losing 175 pounds. But then as my weight got lower and lower, 
what I noticed was focusing on what I, what I was eating so much and then also the, the fasting element started to cause difficulty in my, uh, my psychological health. Um, so I started to notice when I got on the scale in the morning that w- the number the scale said would affect my mood the rest of the day. And I also started to notice that when I was doing more of the timed eating and fasting, I had a harder time focusing at work and I was more temperamental. Um, so these things early on in my weight loss journey that were essential, right, to, to focus on my diet a lot, to focus on my weight, to focus on fasting, then as my journey went on, become, became less and less adaptive. And then I had to make changes to focus more on my mental health, to focus more on my psychological health. So I made choices like to use the scale less frequently, um, to not use as much fasting, uh, to be a little less restrictive about my diet, because I wanted to optimize then for for my mental health and for stress reduction in my life. And what I found is by by making that shift... um, Instead of my my health, uh, my focus on health becoming something that was making my life worse, um, I was able to then uh, experience a sense of flourishing again, a sense that I was becoming holistically healthy again. So here's my hypothesis. I want to hypothesize that there's sort of a spiritual antagonistic pleiotropy. Right, that in our life, our, our resources are scarce. And, and I would propose that the primary resources we have that are scarce are our time and attention. We only have so much time and so much attention. And whatever we give that time and attention to is going to be uh, all we can give our time and attention to. It kind of goes without saying. Uh, but you're not going to get more time nor more attention. So in our our spiritual life, there are things that are essential early on, early on in our conversion to the Lord, early on in our growth and virtue. But then as we as we progress, as we get to later stages in the spiritual life, these same things that were essential early on slowly become less important. And eventually holding on to these things can become problematic. So let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, one example might be learning, right? Uh, you might be saying, what? Learning's always good. And it's true, learning is always good. But early on in conversion, it's, it's essential to learn, right? To enter into the scriptures, to learn the doctrines of the faith. Um, but I want to propose that if we hold on to that too much or too long, it can actually become problematic, So learning about the faith is essential early in conversion, but gathering more and more data becomes increasingly less helpful as we grow closer to the Lord. Um, To explain this, I like to think about the different kinds of memory. Our, our, our minds form explicit memories. These are like memories that we would learn from an encyclopedia or dictionary, and then also narrative memories, uh, things that we uh, remember from our life, the stories of our life. But we also have implicit memories. These are memories that don't come with sense impressions. Uh, so one example would be our structural memory. Structural memory is the memory that we act out of when we feel like we're on autopilot. Right, so early on in conversion, it's important to, to gather a lot of these explicit memories. We're going to have experiences of the Lord that, that change our life, and we're going to remember the story of our conversion, and we're also going to learn the information about the faith, and that's essential. Uh, but I think we all hit a point where we're turning to the Lord, and we run into a problem or struggle that we can't overcome. Right, We feel stuck. 
uh, we might have this this excitement early on in conversion where we have all this change and we feel like our whole life is different. But then we hit a wall and, and we realize we have some some habit, right? Some vice, some struggle that I'm not overcoming, right? I keep falling back into it. Maybe it's that feeling of continually going back to confession and saying the same sin over and over and over again, right? So how do we change that? I would propose that we change it by changing our structural memories, Right, and if we hold on to that that excessive focus on learning, that was very important early in conversion. Uh, this can become less and less helpful, and eventually, actually, that that learning about the faith can become uh, can become a problem. Right? We only have so much time and attention, right? So if if we continue to invest in uh, listening and watching podcasts, um, maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, hopefully, I'm offering you something to you here to also in. in your life too and hopefully every everything you listen and, and read does or just looking for the next spiritual book or to learn the secret that will finally set you free right if, if you just focus on that learning part it might stop you from entering into uh, different things that are essential for the spiritual life like forming uh, meaningful relationships with people where you can talk about your problems be vulnerable uh, receive the other person's love and acceptance have someone to be accountable to right we need to enter into these relational elements of the faith and we also have to enter into uh, changing these structural memories so this requires experiences this requires a focus on living the faith um, on on forming new uh, patterns in the body and in the brain through neuroplasticity that we can uh, then change the way that we're acting out in those moments when we're on autopilot Right. So so this practice of learning about the faith, if we just focus on that to the extent that we we don't invest in relationships and being really vulnerable with people and growing in experiences where we can change the, the structure of our minds and bodies, um, then we can remain stuck in our bad habits. All right. Another example. Another example is um, when we're growing in prayer. Early on in conversion, it's really important to learn the prayers of the faith, things like the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, maybe the Rosary, devotional prayers like litanies and novenas, right? Because these teach us the language of, of the tradition of our faith, the language of our Lord and Savior. And also they, these, these words form our heart and, and sentiments to the Lord. Um, and then we might also start to meditate, meditative prayer, where we consider the mysteries of the faith and meditate on the scripture. Uh, but in our traditional conception of the spiritual life as Catholics, there's different ages of the spiritual life, meaning that our, as our soul grows, our relationship with God actually changes. And one of these transitions happens between what, what's sometimes called the, the age of purification or the age of the beginner into the, the age of the proficient or the illuminative way. So there's a shift that happens in prayer at this time where, where our prayer moves from being more discursive, meaning thought-based, where I'm considering things uh, propositionally from point A to point B to point C. Um, so an example of this kind of thinking might be picking up the scripture and taking a story like uh, in John chapter 8, the woman that's caught in adultery. So I would take that story and, and consider the Lord's words, um, neither do I condemn you. And then I would apply that idea to my life. Okay, neither does the Lord condemn me. 
right? And then I would take the next step and say, well, well, from this position of acceptance of the Lord, I can open myself to receive his grace and be strengthened to sin no more, right? He, he tells the woman to then go and sin no more, right? So, so by in- encountering this passage discursively through a thought process, I meditate on it and have an experience of our Lord that changes my heart and mind. Well, it's a common experience as people grow in the spiritual life that this kind of discursive prayer actually becomes more difficult. Here is St. John of the Cross's account of this. This is from the third stanza of The Living Flame of Love. This is what St. John of the Cross has to say. And if formerly it sought sweetness and love and fervor and found it, now it must neither seek it nor desire it. For not only will it be unable to find it through its own diligence, but it will rather find aridity. For it turns from the quiet and peaceful blessings which were secretly given to its spirit to the work that it desires to do with sense. And thus it will lose the one and not obtain the other, since no blessings are now given to it by means of sense as they were formerly. All right, so what's he talking about? Blessings giving, given to it by means of sense. So we're talking here about our external senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling, and then our internal senses of memory and imagination. So what St. John is referring here to is in prayer, the soul is experiencing blessings from God through these senses. You pick up the scripture, you think about something in your life or a concept of the faith, and you apply your imagination to it, you apply a thought process to it, and then you experience the Lord through this thought process. And then St. John of the Cross is saying that that in the growth process, then we can start to experience aridity or dryness, meaning those consolations, that experience of the Lord that we used to have uh, by doing this kind of meditation then goes away. And what we're being invited to is a more simple form of prayer, a quieter prayer called contemplation, where the, the primary focus of the prayer isn't me thinking about the faith and then the Lord coming into that process, but it's actually the Lord directly leading my prayer, what's sometimes called infused prayer or contemplation. Right, so we need to, to dispose ourselves to this contemplative prayer by spending time in quiet, letting go of images, and allowing the Lord to lead our heart. John goes on to say, Wherefore, in this state, the soul must never have meditation imposed upon it, nor must it perform any acts, nor strive after sweetness or fervor, for this would be to set an obstacle in the way of the principal agent, who, as I say, is God. Right? So this style of prayer that was essential early on, right? these devotional prayers in this prayer of meditation, and then this experience that was also essential early on of experiencing God tactilely in prayer, experiencing him through our internal and external senses, um, then actually starts to become problematic. Right? We're, we're clinging to these images, these, these sense impressions, when the Lord is beyond our sense impressions. The Lord is, is a mystery that's beyond our full comprehension. So by clinging to meditation, we're actually then forfeiting these contemplations. 
Right? So it's this kind of antagonistic pleiotropy, this teeter-totter. As we grow closer to the Lord, we have to more and more let go of that devotional prayer, that meditative prayer, and, and then enter into the silence, enter into the contemplative prayer with the Lord and receive those infused blessings from him. All right, as I'm talking, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that maybe this is stirring ideas in your own mind. Right? Maybe there are things in your life that you're holding on to that were really helpful, that were essential. Um, and now as you're encountering new difficulties, as you're in a new age of your life, maybe you have to let go of them or emphasize them less to, to, to pick up something different. Uh, maybe you've gone into that place that, that I've struggled with where I just continue to learn and learn and learn thinking that the next information or the next secret that I discover will save me when in fact what I need is I need people in my life to share with, to be accountable to, um, to receive love from. Or maybe um, you've also fallen into a temptation like I have to hold on to devotional prayers and to try to meditate even after the, the point where it, it's arid, right? God isn't coming to me in that sense impression, but the, the Lord might hold your attention very gently in your will, right? And it'd be a more simple, more quiet kind of contempl- con- contemplation of the Lord. Uh, and there's probably other areas of your life that you can relate to this idea too. Thanks for sticking with us through this episode where we talked about antagonistic pleiotropy and holiness. I just want to remind you about the show notes. Uh, If you want to go deeper in any of the topics that I've discussed or want help applying the concepts uh, that I discuss in the podcast, you can go to my website, which is becominggift.com. And I also do life coaching. So if you want help applying the concepts of the show, go to becominggift.com forward slash coach. This show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hollow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org slash donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app slash awaken.